Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. <laughs> uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Mike and Vonnie Lant at River's Edge Winery down in Elkton. It's August 21st, 2019. Thank you guys both so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Uh, first question, most important question, why wine? We drank a lot of it. Um, Vaughn grew up in Southern California. I grew up in Spokane, Washington. We met fighting over some equipment in a laboratory at the University of Oregon. And uh, we got married and we're both biochemists. And there are very few jobs for biochemists in Oregon except teaching other people to be biochemists. We ended up in St. Louis, Missouri for 20 some years. And we're looking for a way to come back to Oregon that would use our backgrounds and theoretically allow us to make a living. Uh, we started out with a little vineyard, three-acre vineyard, uh, on Walnut Hill, just uh, north and east of Amity, Oregon. Uh, we sold that in 1996 because we realized it was too small for our ambitions mm -hmm. and ended up here because two vineyards became available here that are a total of 11 and a half acres, which we realized was large enough for our ambitions. And because they're here, we're here. <laughs> Was there a point at which you were talking about kind of looking for something to do that would be fulfilling with your backgrounds plus a Mike way has to a living? habit of coming home and saying, I have an idea, and I always say, oh no, <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> so tell me about the, about the move uh, back to, to, to Oregon and, and getting started in Amity. Well, that little vineyard, that three-acre vineyard, we farmed at long distance. We lived in St. Louis the entire time that we owned it, and we hired a service to take care of it. But one thing that we got lucky with is that we met a French-trained winemaker, John Elias, who we may have interviewed, I don't know. Um, not, not yet. He lives in Portland, uh, and we partnered in that. We provided the grapes, he made the wine, and we split the proceeds. Um, and that went on for quite a few years, and that is basically our own, only real training in winemaking, is what we learned from John, and have picked up in others, mm -hmm. wine sources. We have no formal training in winemaking. So we started out making one barrel in 1994. That's then, right. And this was, was Pinot? I think it was. Yes. Was it Pinot? Mm -hmm. Was there, uh, when you started, you talked about your ambitions. What were your ambitions when you started? My ambitions were to ultimately come out here, to leave St. Louis behind. It's a wonderful city, but weather is not one of the great things there. Um, and I could not handle the summers there. So we were looking for a way to get back to Oregon. and. Uh, uh, wine is something we, were, we really liked, something we knew something about, mm -hmm. um, and our biochemistry backgrounds weren't going to hurt. And so we ultimately hit upon buying these older vineyards. They were planted in 1973, among the very oldest still producing vineyards in Oregon. And um, we built this building in 2000 and opened up a tasting room on the weekends, ultimately every day now. Um, mm -hmm. And we just slowly progressed, got larger. Um, and we knew that we, we could um, grow the grapes and we could make the wine, but then we said, oh no, we have to sell it. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, that was a different, whole different ag part tell, of the business. Tell me about that. Tell me about learning how to sell wine. Well, that's been, uh, that's been a, a problem. Um, in 1995, 
there were 3,200 wine distributors in the United States. There are now about 1,200 wine distributors in the United States. In 2006, we were selling the vast majority of our wine through distributors and had our distributors on allocation. They couldn't buy any just anything they wanted. Well, those days are long gone. Um, we uh, still have distributors. We are making efforts to expand our horizons. Uh, we sent our general manager, Colin Duddy, to Europe this, uh, this uh, winter where we're trying to recruit overseas distribution. Mm -hmm. um, and we uh, are successful in exporting a fair amount of wine to Ontario, Canada. But just about every few months or year, we lose a distributor and find it very difficult to replace them. Mm -hmm. So we've really worked at expanding our direct-to-consumer. Mm -hmm. And of course, the tasting room being open every day has been a good outlet mm -hmm. for wine. We've, we've got a wine club. The wine club is really helping. Um, we have a certain presence on the internet, which we need to expand on quite a bit. But that's it's true that uh, we need to focus on direct to consumer. Mm -hmm. Sure. So let's back up a little bit. Talk about the vineyards when you found these vineyards down here. You mentioned how old they are, oldest continually producing. So tell me about the, the state of the vineyards and kind of what you hoped when you when you saw them. Well, we saw them for about a half an hour and bought them. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're own rooted, that is, they are not grafted, mm -hmm. and so they are susceptible to the insect pest phylloxera. Mm -hmm. We've managed to keep that at bay. There's no phylloxera in our immediate area, uh, but it's something to worry about. Uh, the but they were in good shape when we bought them. They're in pretty good shape. We've put quite a bit, an investment in replacing trellis and mm -hmm. deer fence. We've placed almost all the deer fence on all sides. But they'd been farmed by the original ma the family that had planted them in the first place in 73. Mm -hmm. And they had five kids who all grew up and declined to carry on, as happens, I think, with families. Mm -hmm. So we figured the kids had developed a bad attitude growing up. Well, they probably worked pretty hard in those vineyards and, <laughs> and uh, maybe weren't looking forward to working hard in them anymore. <laughs> but um, we bought, the, Ken Thomason is the gentleman we bought the vineyards from. And he suggested that we talk to John Bradley because we weren't work living here full time. Mm -hmm. We needed somebody to take care of the vineyard. Mm -hmm. So that was the start of a good friendship and partnership. Right. So we did not quit our day jobs completely until 2005. We went part time, half time in 2003. So it was again a gradual process of, of uh, building the winery, doing some work in the vineyard and ultimately getting it to a situation where uh, we could expect it to support ourselves. In fact, the first few summers when we were only open, the tasting room only open weekends, um, Bonnie Bradley actually was running the tasting room for us. People still can get confused between Bonnie and Bonnie at River's Edge. <laughs> <laughs> believe it, I believe it. So tell me about the area when, when you got here. Tell me about Elkton uh, as, a, as a wine growing region when you, when you got well, here. Well, there was, a, there was um, the Bradley Vineyard, which is around, it's 20 some acres. There are our vineyards, which are 11 to 12 acres. There was a neighboring vineyard uh, owned by the Bing family, which was 12 acres. Um, have I left any out? I don't think there were I any other vineyards it. in there. Yeah. Um, and we were the first winery in 2000, but things really changed dramatically. Um, the next winery uh, was Brandborg in 2002, and then Bradley opened a tasting room in 2003. Um, 
now there's about 150 acres of vineyard in the immediate area. Um, and uh, just people have just sort of piled on um, and decided that this is a good place to grow grapes and, and to make wine. Sure. Tell me about the, the, the grapes you're growing here. What, what, was, what was already being grown in the original vineyard and what kind of what you've done to the vineyard? Well, that's interesting because um, the vineyard was equal parts Pinot Noir, Riesling, and Gewürztraminer. And um, I'm probably uh, a little different than my fellow uh, grape growers around here, but I'm not a fan of Elkton Riesling. So I had that all grafted over to Pinot Noir and I grafted most of the Gewürztraminer to Pinot Noir as well. So now we have 10 acres of Pinot Noir and an acre and a half of Gewürz left. And we just had one sub-clone when we bought the vineyards. It was Bodensville. Mm -hmm. And now we have 115 and, and Pomard. Pomard. And so it's kind of to diversify the Pinot as well. Sure. Tell me about the kind of the learning process coming from a background in biochemistry but not a background in growing or making wine. Well then again we were fortunate in that we met and um, really uh, built up a friendship with John Bradley. Hmm. And John Bradley took care of the vineyard between 1997 and 2003. Um, and uh, in that intervening, in those intervening years I just asked a lot of questions. and. Um, learned a lot uh, from John. What was something about being in the vineyard or winery business that surprised you as, uh, as newcomers to it? Was there something that you were not expecting? Hmm. Um, not that I can uh, think of. Well, I can think of one thing. All the handwork in a vineyard. Um, when I bought a vineyard, it looks pretty. It was all that nice foliage out there and the grapes are beautiful and it didn't surprise me that I had to spray it but all the, the and the pruning I knew about but there's all that that uh, thinning suckering leaf pulling all sorts of handwork in the that I was not expecting and when we did the grafting early on that required a lot of handwork hand yeah. to train the new trellis the up the trellis and and actually, I ended up doing a lot of that because when we first moved out here, you went ahead to go back to St. Louis a lot. That's true. So I would spend a couple of hours every morning out in the vineyard, which was actually quite fun. And I don't even do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about sort of balancing your time between living in St. Louis, full-time job, also having it out here. Tell me about, were there, besides just sort of time management, were there other challenges towards having a vineyard so well, far away? we had a cat. <laughs> and the cat made 11 plane rides between St. Louis and Elkton. But he was great, you know. We gave him Kitty Valium. And, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I had to carry him through security, clutched to my chest. That was the only scary part. Um, we always knew he would escape and we shut down the concourse. <laughs> but it never happened. And he'd get out of his his carrier wherever that was and he'd go right straight to his food bowl and he was at home. He was really good. He was a city cat and a country cat. <laughs> you talked about being the, the first winery in the area when you, when you opened up in 2000. Tell me about your first experiences making wine or uh, with finding a winemaker and, and, well, and, and that process. Uh, we made our first batch here in the fall of 2000 and uh, we actually utilized equipment at Cooper Mountain uh, Winery, basically uh, custom crushed it, then brought the barrels back here and finished the process here. 
Again, we had John Eliason as our winemaker consultant. And he was our winemaker consultant, I think, until 2003. Mm. And um, then Mike took over as winemaker. Yeah, and then I took over. What about the winemaking process appealed to you? One of the things that really appeals to me is that we make a product, a physical food, uh, a nutrient-carrying uh, product. It's not, we're not generating, uh, we're not in the insurance business or the stock and bond business or something that's non-tangible. Something tangible, yeah, drinkable. It's a, it's a tangible product that we can enjoy and so can our customers. Um. What were the sort of skills you needed to learn to make wine when you, when you took over as winemaker? What, were the, what was it that you uh, kind of had to know how to do? Well, a lot of it was similar to working in a lab. Mm -hmm. You had to be organized, you had to keep notes, you have to have be clean. <laughs> I always say that making wine is basically moving liquid from place to place and cleaning up afterwards. <laughs> so that wasn't too different from a lot of our previous work. And we were interested in, in fermentation in general before, so. Mm -hmm. uh, so what would you say your winemaking philosophy is? What do you want people to get out of wine you've made or you've we worked with? We want uh, the wine to reflect place and year, place and vintage. So we do not want to formulate the wines. We want them to be the reflect. If it's a really hot year, we want them to be both more full-bodied and to have a higher alcohol and to, and to reflect that vintage. Mm -hmm. um, and we want to take advantage of our unique climactic situations here. Um, Elkton is only, the, this building is only 31 miles from the ocean. Mm -hmm. And the vineyards are about 33 miles from the ocean. And that, um, that proximity to the ocean really influences our climate on summer afternoons. If you look out the, the picture window in the tasting room, you'll see that the vines that we've, that we've grown on the southern side of the building are all leaning to the left. Mm -hmm. and that's because when they were little teeny vines, I would tie them up to the trellis, and then the afternoon breeze coming up the gorge would blow them over, and then I'd push them up, and then it'd blow them over, and then I'd push them up. Sometimes I didn't push up them enough, or often enough, and they all end up leaning to the left, reflecting that, that ocean influence and breeze that transmits that. Um, so we are a little warmer during the day than much of the Willamette Valley. We're relatively low in elevation here. We're about 140 feet. The vineyards are on the 200 to 300 range. Um, and we're further south than the area around uh, southwest of Portland, for instance. But we're a little cooler at night, and we're only talking about a, a few degrees because of that ocean breeze that we get, starting in like 2.30 or 3 a.m. Mm -hmm. mm. So we end up with wines that are a little higher in alcohol, on average, a little more full-bodied, um, but retain sufficient tartness, acidity, to give it balance because of those cool nights mm -hmm. that we have. Mm. Nice. Um, what does it mean to you to practice sustainability in, in your vineyards and your winery? Well, we're really big on that. You can't see them from here, but we've got 36 uh, photovoltaic panels on the roof. And over here is our inverter that converts that into electricity that we can use. And the excess goes out towards our electric cooperative, Douglas Electric Cooperative, and makes the meter run backwards. And we, uh, 
we build up credit starting in May, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. And it goes through. last till December? December. Mm-hmm. And uh, so much, half of the year, we're net producers of electricity. Um, we are um, uh, certified sustainable by LIVE, which is Low Input Viticulture and Enology, both the winery and the vineyards. Mm-hmm. The vineyards have been certified since 2004. We just got the winery certified last year. Um, it requires us to do something every year to improve the sustainability of the operation. Mm-hmm. So last year, we replaced the, the two um, garage doors. They had been R four and a half or five doors. They're now R seventeen and a half doors. I don't know what we're going to do this year, but we're going to do something, <laughs> and we'll improve the efficiency of the place. You talked about John Bradley earlier as a, as a as an early helper and, and Bonnie as early helpers. Now you have Tyler working for you as winemaker. Tell me about how that came to be. Well, uh, it came about by an unfortunate um, uh, cause. Um, John Bradley passed away. Um, January of 2014. Uh, very suddenly. Um, and um, Bonnie Bradley uh, was doubting whether she could continue to run the, uh, the vineyard and the tasting room on her own. Mm-hmm. So both of their children, they actually had three children, but two of the three children mm-hmm. quit their high-powered high power jobs. Tyler was working for Angie's List in Indianapolis. The daughter, Rachel, was teaching um, in um, Phoenix, Oregon. They both came back here to help their mom, and Tyler needed a job, so we hired him as an assistant winemaker. Uh, three years after that, we promoted him to winemaker, and now I don't have to do any heavy lifting at all. <laughs> so Mike demoted himself. <laughs> so what are your roles in the business now? How do you, what, what, what part do you play I, here? I put myself in charge of sales. Mm-hmm. And I bond. still do a lot of the accounting mm-hmm. and paperwork, mm-hmm. and I'm slowly passing that off to um, Colin Duddy, who is our second full-time employee. We, Colin came to us because he was a good friend of Tyler's. They worked together in, in Chicago. And Colin and his then partner, who's now his fiance, kind of wanted something different from downtown Chicago. So they, <laughs> they, found, it, they found it here it's in Elkton. A little bit different, a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. What's the famous street they live on? Oh, I don't know, but pretty Miracle Mile or something. Downtown, near downtown Chicago. But they've taken to the country life, and Colin is now our general manager, and he's actually the person who got the winery certified sustainable. The vineyards already were, but we had a few hoops to jump through and records to keep. I mean, he's very good at that. Sure. Back when the inspector came, I told Colin that. He was his eyes were going to glaze over with all his little charts and graphs, and, and sure enough, they did. But we got certified, <laughs> so that worked out. Tell me a little bit about the evolution of the winery since you started. You're about 20 years old now, making wine, and I know you make other things that you're not growing. So tell me about kind of the other varietals you're making and the and the growth of the of the of the River's Edge. Well, we started out when we opened that tasting room in 2000. We had two Pinot Noirs and a dry Gewürztraminer. That's all we had. Um, and we quickly learned, we really didn't appreciate this, that um, it's important to have diversity in what you offer, 
And part of that importance has to do with the fact that it's more welcoming. It's more, um, it's nicer. Hospitable. Yeah. Yeah. Hospitable. If you have some wines that are sweet, because there's people who really like. So we like we like Pinot and we like dry Gewurz and we were surprised when people wanted something different. <laughs> <laughs> so we we branched out. Uh, one of the things that helped us is that we only had Pinot Noir and Gewurz in our vineyard, but these other people planting vineyards on all sides of us gave us material to work with. And for quite a few years, um, we were the buyer. We were the first buyer for many of the vineyards mm -hmm. who started out here, and we. We're kind of proud of that in that uh, we felt that we were helping out the community mm -hmm. establish an alternative to um, the timber industry mm -hmm. in terms of trying to make a living here. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there's been a substantial um, influx of younger people associated with the wine business, not only with our winery but in uh, other, other operations here, mm -hmm. that has changed uh, the um, um, age makeup of the, the surrounding area. You talked earlier about kind of the unique spot here Elkton is, uh, southern but not that southern, close to the coast and cool. So uh, you talked about it being well suited for wine grapes. What is there anything you've had to do differently because of the kind of interesting climactic uh, area you have here? Uh, one of the things we have to watch out for is we can overdo it in the sugar and therefore alcohol department. So we, we've made a fair number of uh, 15% and we have actually made, on four occasions, a 16% in noir, and it still wasn't dry. It still had some sweetness, which we were appalled at when it first happened. <laughs> what are we going to do with a sweet Pinot Noir? But we bottled it up under a, a cute name, Dulcet Cuvée, and it flew out the door. So now we're looking for opportunities to do that when we can. Um, but we do have to watch that we, we can get our alcohols up. So that's, that's been a bit of a learning curve for us. Now you mentioned other varietals. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things about having two young guys working for the winery is that they have ideas and they want to <laughs> put them in, into exercise. So now we have a sparkling Pinot Gris, we have a sparkling Rosé of Pinot Noir. We are about to uh, bottle our first uh, late harvest Pinot Gris. We're, they're doing things, they're advocating for things that uh, we might not ever have attempted. Have um, kind of that's a fancy second label, which is coming out with our sparkling um, rosé. Mm -hmm. And if it was up to us, we'd have the same label for all eternity, but apparently we're glad that we're getting a little difference and new input. Variety, right? Variety. And you also make a Baco Noir, is that correct? We do. That's a bit of a story. Um, uh, a couple uh, living in Hollywood, California, decided they wanted to give up the California rat race and bought nine acres directly across from our vineyard, across the street. And one day the gentleman walks through the door of the tasting room and says, I want to plant an acre of grapes. And I thought about that for not very long and said, you should plant Baca Noir. The advantage of Baca Noir is it's because it's a hybrid, a French-American hybrid, you do not have to spray it for mildew. Um, and that would mean he could avoid the expense of buying a high-power sprayer. And they currently go for about $13,000 a year, $13,000 a piece. Mm -hmm. um, so he planted an acre of Bacca Noir, 
And then three years later, he walked through the vacation room door and says, I've got Bach and Noir grapes. And of course, it was my idea, so guess who gets some <laughs> So that and was our first I have to say, that's been a wonderful development for us because it is one of our very most popular offerings. We, uh, we almost only offer it from the tasting room. We have a distributor on the coast that insists on getting it, but otherwise it is all sold here. But then he walked through the door a couple of years after that and said, I want to plant two more acres of grapes. I said, great, plant some more Pinot Blanc Noir. He said, nah, I'm bored with Blanc <laughs> So we ended up planting, he ended up planting Sauvignon Blanc and Aligoté. And actually the tank I was gassing when you came in, that's this year's Aligoté. Um, that's a pretty um, unusual variety mm -hmm. that most people haven't heard of, but it is um, a good seller for us, and it's a particularly a good restaurant one. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Elkin. Uh, Elkin became its own sub AVA not too long ago. Tell me about that, that well, process and, and what it meant for you guys. Um, that was sort of a, uh, a joint project. Um, uh, Terry Brandborg uh, was a proponent of that, and but I ended up writing the first draft. Uh, we sent it off to Greg Jones. Do you know who mm -hmm. Greg Jones Greg, is? Greg Jones works at Linfield now. We right. know him very well. Oh, yes. And uh, uh, he really helped us out. When I sent it to him, it was five pages. When it came back, it was like 11 pages or something like that. <laughs> and he had been through the process before, so he understood what, right. and we didn't understand what was really required. And um, we submitted it to the offices of, of the uh, TTB mm -hmm. in uh, Napa Valley, California, and landed on the desk of a lady who retired six months later. And I don't know whether that derailed it or, or it got it on the bottom of somebody else's, else's desk, pile. Yeah. but it took three years for it to get approved. Uh, and there was a little bit of back and forth, but, mm -hmm. and, but they didn't ask too many questions. Mm -hmm. uh, and we uh, were granted the AVA in February of 2013, and I figured, ah, nobody's really going to care. Uh, that, so, why? What, What's important about that uh, ABA? There were articles written in Chinese. There were <laughs> articles written in Great Britain. Uh, most of the local papers as far as San Francisco and Portland had articles about mm -hmm. it. Uh, it was really kind of a big deal. And people um, who came in the tasting room knew about it and mm -hmm. commented on it. So, And that was the best part, I think, that, that actual customers knew and people who came to Elkton knew about that already. Why was it important for you to have Elkton be its own ABA? We need as much as we can to set ourselves apart from the remainder of the Umpqua Valley. It's not because we don't like those folks, we like them just fine. It's because we're different than they are. If you go down by Roseburg, you can grow Syrah, you can grow Cabernet, you, and people do. Uh, and they also grow Pinot Noir, and maybe they shouldn't or maybe they shouldn't be growing Pinot Noir because it's pretty hot for Pinot Noir. But we cannot grow Syrah, we can't grow, well, I take it back, you can grow the vines, but you'll never get those grapes ripe in most vintages. Take and some of the fun out of it. We can grow Cabernet, but it'll be the same situation. The climate here is really perfect for Pinot Noir and related cool weather varieties. And if you just, if you just have Umpqua Valley on your label, a lot of people are going to be familiar with the fact that they can grow those varieties mm -hmm. in the Roseburg area and are maybe going to look askance at, at uh, just having uh, no, no Syrah to offer, no Cabernet. Mm -hmm. 
So, Bonnie, you, Bonnie, you mentioned the people noticing it, coming into the tasting room, knowing about it. So, yes. have you seen an uptick in business? Have you seen an uptick in, in kind of people knowing Elkton and recognizing? Absolutely. When we first came, and we we would start <laughs> doing festivals to um, augment the tasting room, and we did festivals at Newport, up near Portland, mm -hmm. McMinnville, and probably 90% of the people would come to our table and say, where is Elkton? And I'd have to say now, well, we don't do festivals anymore, Colin does them for us, but um, I think hardly anyone asks, where is Elkton? So we feel like Elkton is indeed on the map and people know us. Uh, on that note, where do you see the future for Elkton specifically, maybe the Umpqua Valley in, in, in general as you kind of look ahead? Hmm. Well, I'm a little surprised that the boom in the formation of Oregon wineries is continuing. And I think, I expect that eventually, particularly small wineries that want to graduate to uh, a national presence are going to have increasing difficulties because of the lack of distributors. Mm -hmm. And the, the distributors that have been lost are, for the most part, not the really huge ones, which already have quite a few Oregon wineries. They're, for the most part, uh, the boutique mm -hmm. um, operations that, that uh, cater to uh, wineries like us mm -hmm. that are in the two, three, four, five thousand case. And in most uh, cases, products. they had been bought up by the bigger distributors. And so, just don't, going out of business. You don't really, I mean, it's hard for them to pay attention to little wineries. Sure. So you get lost in their book. Sure. So you, so you see then a, a, a... I wonder if that trend will not change, whether the formation of all those wineries will not slow down. <clears throat> I don't think it'll stop. And I understand that Oregon wines are still selling very well on a national uh, basis. But um, it's, it's a hard business to grow to the state of 5,000 case uh, level, mm -hmm. I think. Unless you have a special situation where you're maybe in downtown Portland and, and uh, you can sell all your wine directly from the tasting room door. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I think I think it's going to get harder. For what about locally? Do you see Elkton? Do you see you talk about Elkton growing up around you a little bit. Do you see it growing up some more? I do, and um, I would advise people who are planting vineyards here to find a market for their grapes before they they plant that vineyard. Um, I'd have to say when we bought vineyards, we had not and where we're going to be selling them. Um, well, we plan to use them all to make wine, our wine. And we were certainly going to have a tasting room, mm -hmm. but um, we didn't plan to sell all, all of them now. Right? We, we intended to find distributors, and we did. Mm -hmm. So what about the future for River's Edge? What, is it, what do you see here when you look five, ten years in the future? Uh, it will be scarce. <laughs> we won't see Bonnie and I around here too much. Um, Bonnie, uh, Colin, and Tyler, uh, I expect to take over much of it. We'll probably be some way involved. Maybe I'll still have a role in sales. Mm -hmm. Maybe Vaughn will be doing payroll, payroll. or something like that. But, <laughs> they'll they'll uh, like we, to have me come by. We yeah. have um, established a presence in Seattle. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a second home there. And in fact, we just got back yesterday from a week trip there. And we like we, the contrast between Elkton and Seattle. I can see that, yeah. It's a little different up there. <laughs> and so uh, we, we uh, need and want to turn it over to these guys. Cool. And they like it when we're gone. <laughs> <laughs> and they get to have fun with new varietals. That, That's you know, right, new, yeah, new labels. labels. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
what kind of words of wisdom would you would you have to someone who was interested in entering the Oregon wine industry today? You mentioned finding a buyer for your grapes. Beyond that, any other words of wisdom? Um, Don't take yourself too seriously. <sighs> One disadvantage that we have here, uh, and it's an important disadvantage, is that we're not next to a large population center. Uh, and although we are next to a, a very busy highway, a highway that might have 10,000 cars a weekend on it in the summer, um, it's still uh, a serious advantage to be close to um, a large population center. And so if I were to do it over again, we might not necessarily be right here in terms of the winery. This is where the vineyards were, so yeah. that's why we're here. We didn't even know where Elkton was. We had lived in Eugene back in the 70s, and you said you came through Elkton once on your in way the of the night to, to go sanitary. fishing, but other than that, we never came down here. So, so once we actually lived here, it, it, of course, it's a different perspective. Mm -hmm. and, did that take a while to adjust to? Did you take a while to adjust to being in Elkton? Well, I think the way we did it was a, for us was good. We did just plop down. <laughs> You know, and just just didn't quit our day jobs and we'll, we'll right. run here. So, so it took us right. almost ten years to actually to make the transition. So mm -hmm. that worked out really quite well, I think. And we were small, and but we got to know people. Miles to the nearest full service grocery store. And if you need a screw or a bolt, um, there's no local source. You're going to have to go to at least uh, Roseburg, or you're going to have to go 35 miles to get it. And so that was kind of a big in St. Louis we had rehabbed an older house and Mike did a lot of the work himself and he would often go to the hardware store like oh three, four times in an afternoon. So that was really But it was different. only a mile away. So <laughs> no big deal. Sure, sure. Oh yes. Thank you. So last question for you today. Uh, what would we really like to ask? Uh, what's the secret to, to a successful marriage in the Oregon wine industry? <laughs> Drink a lot of it. Drink a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, we're... Um, uh, I don't know how to answer that question. We're compatible. Yeah. <laughs> we're both Virgos. We don't like confrontation. <laughs> Folks that way. Well... Uh, thank you both so much for your time today. Is there, well, is there anything, anything I should have asked that I didn't ask? Anything we didn't talk about that we should have covered? Not that I can think of. Mm -hmm. nope. Thank you both so much. We really appreciate this. And, well, thank uh, you. I'll let you off with that. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.